33, and artisans partly and principally by means of a conscription, partly by the adoption of the sons of soldiers, and partly by voluntary enlistment, every individual belonging to these classes island with a few exceptions, liable to compulsory service, provided he be of the proper age and stature, the nominal strength of the Russian army, according to the returns of the Ministry of War, is as follows, 1. Regular Army, Peace Footing, War Footing, Infantry, 364.422-694.511 Cavalry, 38.30649.183 Artillery, 41.831.48.773 Engineers, 13.4136.203 Total, 457.875808.6702 Army of First Reserve, Troops of the Line, 80.455.74.561 Garrison in Regiments, 80.455.23.470 Garrison in Battalions, 19.830.29.86 to total, 100.285.127.9253. Army of Second Reserve, Troops of All Arms, 254.036.199.380 General Total. 812.0961.135.900 among the irregular troops of Russia. The most important are the Cossacks. The country of the Don Cossacks contains from 600.000 to 700.000 inhabitants. In case of necessity, every Cossack, from 15 to 60 years, is bound to render military service. The usual regular military force, however, consists of 54 cavalry regiments, each numbering 1.044 men, making a total of 56.376. The Cossacks are reckoned in round numbers as follows, in military heads, service, on the Black Sea, 125.00018.000 Great Russian Cossacks on the Caucasian Line 150.00018.000 Don Cossacks. 440.00066.000 Ural Cossacks, 50.0008.000 Orenburg Cossacks, 60.0010.000 Siberian Cossacks, 50.0009.000 Total, 875.00129.000 The Russian Navy consists of two great divisions the fleet of the Baltic and that of the Black Sea. Each of these two fleets is again subdivided into sections, of which three are in or near the Baltic and three in or near the Black Sea, to which must be added the small squadrons of galleys, gunboats, and similar vessels, according to an official report. The Russian fleet consisted last year of 290 steamers having 38.000 horsepower, with 2.205 guns, besides 29 sailing vessels, with 65 guns, the greater and more formidable part of this navy was stationed in the Baltic, the Black Sea Fleet numbered 43, the Caspian, 39, the Siberian or Pacific, 30, and the Lake Aral or Turkestan Squadron, 11 vessels, the rest of the ships were either stationed at Kronstadt and Swigorg or engaged in cruising in European waters. The ironclad fleet of war consisted, at the commencement of 1868, of 24 vessels, with an aggregate of 149 guns, as follows, two frigates, one of 18, and one of 24 guns, 42 guns, 
three floating batteries of 14, 16, and 27 guns, 57 guns, two corvettes of 8 guns, 16 guns, six monitors of 2 guns each, 12 guns, 11 turret ships of 2 guns each, 22 guns, total, 24 ironclads with 149 guns. The Imperial Navy was manned at the beginning of 1868 by 60.230 sailors and marines, under the command of 3.791 officers, among whom are 119 admirals and generals. I had a letter to Colonel Molostov, the brother of a Siberian friend and companion du voyage. I knew the colonel would not be at home on the first day of the year, as he had many relatives and friends to visit, so I sent the letter to his house and accompanied Schmidt on a call upon Dr. Fries, a prominent physician of Kazan. Madame Fries was a native of Heidelberg, and evidently loved the Rhine better than the Volga. She gave me a letter to her brother in Moscow, where she promised me an introduction to a niece of the poet Gerda. In the evening Colonel Molostov called at the hotel and took me to the New Year's Ball of the Nobility of Kazan. There was a maze of apartments belonging to the Nobility Club the dancing room being quite as elegant and as spacious as the large hall of the Fifth Avenue Hotel. I found files of English, French, and German papers in the reading room, and spent a little while over the latest news from America. The male portion of the assemblage consisted of officers and civilians, the former in the majority. There was a perfect blaze of stars and gay uniforms, that quite outshone the evening dress of the civilians, as Kazan is old, populous, and wealthy. It is needless to add that the ladies were dressed just like those of St. Petersburg or Paris. I was introduced to several officials, among them the governor, who had recently assumed command. Colonel Molostov introduced me to three ladies who spoke English, but hardly had I opened conversation with the first before she was whisked away into the dance. The second and the third followed the same fate, and I began to look upon ballroom acquaintance as an uncertainty. Now, said the colonel. I will introduce you to one who is not young, but she is charming, and does not dance. We went to seek her, but she was in the midst of a gay party just preparing for a visit to the lunchroom. I was so utterly wearied after my long ride that conversation was a great effort, and I could hardly keep my eyes from closing. I had promised to join a supper party at three o'clock, but midnight found me just able to stand. Fearful that I might bring discredit upon America by going to sleep during the festivities, I begged an excuse and returned to my hotel. Five minutes after entering my room I was in the land of dreams. In the treasury of the Kremlin of Moscow the royal crown of Kazan is preserved. The descendants of Genghis Khan founded the city and made it the seat of their European power. For three centuries it remained a menace to Russia, and held the princes of Muscovy in fear and dread. But as the Russians grew in strength Kazan became weaker, and ultimately fell under the Muscovite control. Ivan the Terrible determined to drive the Tartars from the banks of the Volga. After three severe and disastrous campaigns, and a siege in which assailant and assailed displayed prodigies of valor, Kazan was stormed and captured. The kingdom was overthrown, and the Russian power extended to the Urals. The cruelties of Ivan the Terrible were partially forgiven in return for his breaking the Tartar yoke. A pyramidal monument marks the burial place of the Russians who fell at the capture of the city, and the positions of the besiegers are still pointed out, but I believe no traces of the circumvallation are visible. The walls of the Tartar fortress form a part of the present Kremlin, but have been so rebuilt and enlarged that their distinctive character is gone. Nicholas called Kazan the third capital of his empire, 
and the city is generally admitted first in importance after St. Petersburg and Moscow. Its position is well chosen on the banks of a small river, the Kazanka, which joins the Volga six versts away, on a high bluff stretching into a plateau in the rear of the city and frowning defiantly toward the west. Its position is a commanding one. On the edge of this bluff is the Kremlin, with its thick and high walls enclosing the governor's palace and other public buildings, all overlooked by a lofty bell tower. Every part of the city gives evidence of wealth. The population is about 60,000, including, I presume, the military garrison. There are 12 or 15,000 Tartars, who live in a quarter of the city specially assigned them. They are said to be industrious and peaceful, and some of them have amassed great wealth. I saw a Tartar merchant at the ball on New Year's Eve, and was told that his fortune was one of the best in Kazan. I can testify personally to the energy of Tartar peddlers. On my first morning at the hotel I was visited by itinerant dealers in hats, boots, dressing gowns, and other articles of wear. The Tartars at Moscow are no less active than their brethren of Kazan, and very shrewd in their dealings. Every one of them appears to believe that strangers visit Russia for the sole purpose of buying dressing gowns. I took a drive through the Tartar quarter, or Katidorov, of Kazan, and inspected but did not read the signs over the shops. The houses are little different from those in the Russian quarter, and the general appearance of the streets was the same. I glanced at several female faces in defiance of Mohammedan law, which forbids women unveiling before strangers. On one occasion when no Tartar men were visible, a young and pretty woman removed her veil and evidently desired to be looked at. I satisfied my curiosity, and expressed admiration in all the complimentary Russian adjectives I could remember. As we passed a butcher's shop, my Svoshchik intimated that horse meat was sold there. The Tartars are fond of equine flesh, and prefer it to beef. On the Kyrgyz steps the horse is prominent in gastronomic festivities. Kazan is famous throughout Russia for the extent and variety of its manufactures. Russians and Tartars are alike engaged in them, and the products of their industry bear a good reputation. The city has printing establishments on an extensive scale, one of them devoted to Tartar literature. Several editions of the Quran have been printed here for the faithful in Northern and Central Asia. The University of Kazan is one of the most celebrated institutions of learning in Russia, and has an excellent board of professors. Special attention is devoted to the Asiatic languages and literature, but no other branch of knowledge is neglected. I met the professor of Persian literature, and found him speaking English and French fluently. I was invited to look through the museum and cabinet attached to the university, but time did not permit. There is a ladies' seminary in equally good reputation for its educational facilities. One morning, about two weeks before my arrival at Kazan, the early risers passing this seminary discovered the body of a young man hanging upon the fence. It was clad only in a shirt, and no other clothing could be found. No one recognized the features of the individual, and the occupants of the seminary professed utter ignorance of the affair. As might be expected, great excitement followed the discovery. Visits of the sterner sex were absolutely forbidden, and the young maidens in the building were placed under surveillance. The gentleman who told me the story, said, it is very strange, especially as the public can learn nothing about the young man's identity, while conversing with a high official at Nine Novgorod, a few days later, I referred to this affair and expressed my surprise that the police could not trace it out, that is to say, he replied, with a shrug of the shoulders, that the police have suppressed the particulars, 
it is a scandalous occurrence that may as well be kept from the public. One thing was quite certain, if the police thought proper to conceal the details of this affair, there was no likelihood of their publication. In Russia the police exercise a power much greater than in the United States. Those who have visited France and Austria can form a pretty correct idea of the Russian system. The three countries being nearly alike in this respect, the police has supervision over the people in a variety of ways, controls the fire department, looks after the general health, and provides for the well-being of society. Every man, woman, and child is considered under its surveillance, and accounted for by some member of the force. Passports are examined by the police, and if en regla, the owners are not likely to be troubled. Taxes are collected, quarrels adjusted, and debts paid through its agency. Almost everybody has heard of the secret police of Russia, and many questions have been asked me about it. I cannot throw much light upon it, and if I could it would not be a secret police. I never knowingly came in contact with the shadow, neither did I have the slightest reason to fear it. If my letters were opened and read, those familiar with my manuscript will agree that the police had a hard time of it. If anybody dogged my steps or drew me into conversation to report my opinions at the bureau secret, I never knew it. The servants who brought my cutlets and tea, the woman who washed my linen, or the dvornik who guarded the door, may have been spies upon me, but, if so, I didn't see it. Where ignorance is bliss, tis folly to be wise. People talk politics in Russia with apparent freedom more so than I expected to find. Men and women expressed their opinions with candor as I believe, and criticized what they saw wrong in their government. The Russian journals possess more freedom than those of Paris, and the theaters can play pretty nearly what they like. Official tyranny or dishonesty can be shown up by the press or satirized on the stage more freely and safely than in the country of Napoleon III, with all its boasted freedom. I once read a story in which an Englishman in Austria is represented saying to his companion, No gentleman meddles with the politics of the countries he visits. I made it my rule in Russia never to start the subject of politics in conversation with anybody. Very often it was started, and I then spoke as freely as I would have spoken in New York. If my opinion was asked upon any point, I gave it frankly, but never volunteered it. I believe the golden rule a good one for a traveler. We Americans would think it very rude for a foreigner to come here and point out to us our faults. But for all that, a great many of us visit Europe and have no hesitation in telling the subjects of the various monarchies a variety of impolite truths. During the reign of Nicholas, the secret police was much more extensive than at present. The occurrences of 1825 and subsequent years led to a close surveillance of men in all stations of life. It was said under Nicholas that when three men were assembled, one was a spy and another might be. Doubtless the espionage was rigid, but I never heard that it affected those who said or did nothing objectionable. Under Alexander I.I., the stability of the throne hardly requires the aid of a detective force. And, if what I was told be true, it receives very little. The police have a standing order to arrest any person who speaks to the emperor in the promenade at the public garden. One day Nicholas recognized in the crowd a favorite comedian and accosted him with a few words of encouragement. The actor thanked his majesty for his approval, and the two separated. A stupid policeman arrested the actor, and hurried him to prison on the charge of violating the law. But the emperor spoke to me first, was the apology. No matter, replied the policeman, you spoke to the emperor, and must be arrested. At the theater that evening Nicholas was in the imperial box, 
utterly ignorant of what had occurred to his favorite. The performance was delayed, the audience impatient, manager frantic, and the emperor finally sent to know the cause of the curtain remaining down. The actor did not come, and after waiting some time, his majesty went home. Next morning the prisoner was released, and during the day the emperor learned what had occurred, sending for the victim of police stupidity. He asked what reparation could be made for his night in prison. I beg your majesty, was the frank request, never to speak to me again in the public garden. Nicholas promised compliance. He also made a pecuniary testimonial at the comedian's next benefit. Chapter Lee. Dr. Schmidt sold his sleigh and left Kazan by diligence the day after our arrival. I remained four days, and, when ready to start, managed to pick up a young Russian who was going to Nine Novgorod. Each of us spoke two languages, but we had no common tongue. I brushed up all the Russian I had learned, and compelled it to perform very active service. Before our companionship ended I was astonished to find what an extensive business of conversation could be conducted with a limited capital of words. Our communications were fragmentary and sometimes obscure, but we rarely became hopelessly stuck. When my knowledge of spoken words failed I had recourse to a manual of Russian-English conversation, in which there were phrases on all sorts of topics. Examining the book at leisure one would think it abundantly fertile, but when I desired a particular phrase it was rarely to be found. As a last resource we tried Latin, but I could not remember a hundred words out of all my classics. A regular thaw had set in and the streets were in a condition of slosh that reminded me of Broadway in spring. When we left the hotel, a crowd of attendants gathered to be remembered pecuniarily. The Yanshik tied his horse's tails in the tightest of knots to prevent their filling with snow and water. At the western gate we found a jam of sleds and sleighs, where we stuck for nearly half an hour, despite the efforts of two soldier policemen. When able to proceed we traversed a high causeway spanning the Kazanka Valley and emerged into a suburb containing a large foundry, a mosque and a church, side by side symbolized the harmony between Tartar and Russian. Passing this suburb we reached the winter station of many steamboats and barges, among which we threaded our way. Seven versts from Kazan we reached the bank of the Volga. The first view of the road upon the river was not inviting. There were many pools of surface water, and the continuous travel had worn deep hollows in the snow and ice. Some of the pools into which our Yenshik drove appeared about as safe as a milk pond in May. As the fellow ought to know his route I said nothing, and let him have his own way. We met a great many sleds carrying merchandise, and passed a train going in our direction. One driver carelessly riding on his load was rolled overboard, and fell sidewise into a deep mass of snow and water. He uttered an imprecation, and rose dripping like a boiled cabbage just lifted out of a dinner pot. We headed obliquely across the river toward a dozen towboats frozen in the ice. The navigation of the Volga employs more than 400 steamers, three-fourths of which are toes. Dead walls in Kazan frequently displayed flaming announcements, that reminded me of St. Louis and New Orleans. The companies run a sharp rivalry in freight and passenger traffic, their season lasting from April to October. The gross receipts for 1866 of one company owning 34 boats, was 1,253,000, and some odd rubles. This after deducting running expenses, would not leave a large amount of profit. The surplus in the case of that company was to be applied to paying debts. Not a kopeck, said my informant. Will the stockholders receive in the shape of dividends, 
I did not obtain any full and clear information touching the navigation of the Volga, the steamboats run from Devere, on the Moscow and St. Petersburg Railway, to Astrakhan, at the mouth of the river, the best part of the business is the transport of goods and passengers, chiefly the former, to the fair at 9 Novgorod, the river is full of shifting sandbars, and the channel is very tortuous, especially at low water, the first company to introduce steam on the Volga was an English one, its success induced many Russians to follow its example, so that the business is now overdone, here, as in the Siberian rivers, the custom prevails of carrying freight in barges, which are towed by tugs, all the steamers I saw were side wheelers, we changed horses on the south bank of the Volga, only 12 versts from Kazan, the right bank of the river presents an unbroken line of hills or bluffs, while the opposite one is generally low. The summer road from Kazan westward follows the high ground in the vicinity of the river, but often several versts away. The winter road is over the ice of the Volga, keeping generally pretty near the bank. A double line of pine or other boughs in the ice marks the route. These boughs are placed by the administration of roads, under whose supervision the way is daily examined. No one is allowed to travel on the ice until the officials declare it safe. Night came upon us soon after passing the first station. The road was a combination of pitch holes, water, soft snow, and deers to avoid dangerous places. The most unpleasant drives were when we left the river to change horses at the villages on the high bank. It was well enough going up, but in descending the sleigh sometimes endeavored to go ahead of the horses. Once we came near going over a perpendicular bank 60 or 80 feet high, had we done so, our establishment would have not been worth 50 cents a bushel at the bottom of the bank. Back from the Volga on this part of the route there were many villages of Cherimus, a people of Tartar descent who preserve many of their ancient customs. They are thoroughly loyal to Russia, and keep the portrait of the emperor in nearly every cottage. In accordance with their custom of veiling women they hang a piece of gauze over the picture of the empress. While changing horses, we were beset by many beggars, whose forlorn appearance entitled them to sympathy. I purchased a number of blessings. As each beggar made the sign of the cross over me on receiving a kopeck, Russian beggars are the most devout I ever saw, and display great familiarity with the calendar of saints. One morning at Kazan I stood at my hotel window watching a beggar woman soliciting alms. Several poorly dressed peasants gave her each a kopeck or two, and both giver and receiver made the sign of the cross. One decrepit old man gave her a loaf of bread, blessing it devoutly as he placed it in her hands. So far as I saw not a single well-dressed person paid any attention to the mendicant. Only the poor can feel for the poor. We encountered a great deal of merchandise, carried invariably upon, one horse sleds, cotton, and wool in large sacks were the principal freight going westward, while that moving toward Kazan was of a miscellaneous character. The Yemshiks were the worst I found on the whole extent of my sleigh ride. They generally contented themselves with the regulation speed and it was not often that the promise of drink money affected them. I concluded that money was more easily obtained here than elsewhere on the route. Ten kopecks were an important item to a Yemshik in Siberia, but of little consequence along the Volga. Villages were numerous along the Volga, and most of them were very liberally supplied with churches. We passed Makarif, which was for many years the scene of the great fair of European Russia. Fire and flood alike visited the place and in 1816 the fair was transferred to 9 Novgorod. One of the villages has a church spire that leans considerably toward the edge of the river, 
about 50 versts from 9 Novgorod the population of a large village was gathered, in Sunday dress, upon the ice, a baptism was in progress, and as we drove past the assemblage we caught a glimpse of a man plunging through a freshly cut hole, half a minute later he emerged from the crowd and ran toward the nearest house, the water dripping from his garments and hair, as we passed around the end of the village, I looked back and saw another person running in the same direction. Converts to the Russian Church are baptized by immersion, and, once received in its bosom, they continue members until death do them part. What I have said of the Church in Siberia will apply throughout all Russia. The government is far more tolerant in the matter of religion than that of any Roman Catholic country in Europe, and might reprove Great Britain pretty sharply for its religious tyrannies in unhappy Ireland. Everyone in Russia can worship God according to the dictates of his own conscience provided he does not shop the moral sense of civilization in so doing, every respectable form of Christian worship enjoys full liberty, and so does every respectable form of paganism and anti-Christianity, the Greek faith is the acknowledged religion of the government, and the priests, by virtue of their partly official character, naturally wield considerable power, the abuse or undue employment of that power is not theoretically permitted, however much the church may manifest its zeal, Every effort is made to convert and believers, but no man is forced to accept the Greek faith. Traveling through Russia one may see many forms of worship. He will find the altars of shamanism, the temples of Buddha, the mosques of Islam, and the synagogues of Israel. On one single avenue of the Russian capital he will pass in succession the churches of the Greek, the Catholic, the Armenian, the Lutheran, and the Episcopal faith. He will be told that among the native Russians there are nearly 50 sects of greater or less importance. There are some advantages in belonging to the Church of State, just as in England, but they are not essential. I am acquainted with officers in the military, naval, and civil service of the government who are not, and never have been, members of the Greek Church. I never heard any intimation that their religion had been the least bar to their progress. The Pope, in his encyclical of October, 1867, complains of the conduct of the Russian government toward the Catholics in Poland. No doubt Alexander has played the mischief with the Pope's faithful in that quarter, but not on account of their religion. In Warsaw a Russian officer, a Pole by birth, told me of the misfortunes that had fallen upon the Catholic monastery and college in that city. We found in the insurrection, said the officer, that the monks were engaged in making knives, daggers, cartridges, and other weapons. The priests were the active men of the rebellion, and did more than any other class to urge it forward. And here is a specimen of iron mongery from the hands of the monks. We found 200 of these in the college recently suppressed. Many more were distributed and used. As he spoke he opened a drawer and showed me a short dagger fitting into a small handle. The point of the blade had been dipped in poison, and was carefully wrapped in paper. The instrument was used by sticking it into somebody in a crowd and allowing it to remain. Death was pretty certain from a very slight scratch of this weapon. If this gentleman's story is correct, and it was corroborated by others, the Russian persecution of the Polish Catholics is not entirely without reason. Among the dissenters in the Greek Church there is a body called Starovies the Old Believers. The difference between them and the adherents of the Orthodox faith is more ritualistic than doctrinal. Both make the sign of the cross. Though each has its own way of holding the fingers in the operation, the Starovesti do not use tobacco in any form, and their mode of life is generally quite rigid. Under Catherine and Paul they were persecuted, and, 
as a matter of course, increased their numbers rapidly. For the past 60 years oppression has been removed, and they have done pretty nearly as they liked. They are found in all parts of the empire, but are most numerous in the vicinity of the Ural Mountains. Russia has its share of fanatical sects, some of whom push their religion to a wonderful extreme. One sect has a way of sacrificing children by a sort of slow torture in no way commendable. Another sect makes a burdened offering of some of its adherents, who are selected by lot. They enter a house prepared for the occasion, and begin a service of singing and prayer. After a time spent in devotions, the building is set on fire and consumed with its occupants. Another sect which is mentioned elsewhere practices the mutilation of masculine believers, and steals children for adoption into their families. Against all these fanatics the government exercises its despotic power. The peasants are generally very devout, and keep all the days of the church with becoming reverence. There is a story that a mujik waylaid and killed a traveler, and while rifling the pockets of his victim found a cake containing meat, though very hungry he would not eat the cake, because meat was forbidden in the fast then in force. The government is endeavoring to diminish the power and influence of the priests, and the number of saints' days, when men must abstain from labor. Heretofore the priests have enjoyed the privilege of recruiting the clergy from their own members. When a village priest died his office fell to his son, and if he had no male heir the revenues went to his eldest daughter until some priest married her and took charge of the parish. By special order of the emperor any vacancy is hereafter to be filled by the most deserving candidate. It is said that during the Crimean War the governor of Moscow notified the pastor of the English church in that city that the prayer for the success of her Britannic Majesty's armies must be omitted. The pastor appealed to the emperor, who replied that prayers of regular form might continue to be read, no matter what they contained. The governor made no further interference. About three o'clock in the afternoon of the second day from Kazan, the Yamshik pointed out the spires of Nine Novgorod, on the southern bank of the Volga. A fleet of steamers, barges, and Sudanas lay sealed in the ice along the shore, waiting for the moving of the waters. The road to the north bank was marked with pine boughs, that fringed the moving line of sleighs and sledges. We threaded our way among the stationary vessels, and at length came before the town. A friend had commended me to the Hotel de la Poste, and I ordered the Yamshik to drive there. With an eye to his pocket the fellow carried me to an establishment of the same name on the other side of the Oka. I had a suspicion that I was being swindled, but as they blandly informed me that no other hotel with that title existed, I alighted and ordered my baggage up. This was the end of my sleigh ride. I had passed 209 stations, with as many changes of horses and drivers. Nearly 700 horses had been attached to my sleigh, and had drawn me over a road of greatly varied character. Out of 40 days from Irkutsk, I spent 16 at the cities and towns on the way. I slept 26 nights in my sleigh with the thermometer varying from 35 degrees above zero to 45 below, and encountered four severe storms and a variety of smaller ones, including the deer to Barneal. My sleigh ride was about 3600 miles long, from Strittens by way of Kyotka to Irkutsk. I traveled not far from 1400 miles with wheeled vehicles, and made 93 changes. My whole ride from steam navigation on the Amur to the railway at 9 Novgorod was very nearly 5,000.